Jesus of Nazareth was dead. Unquestionably, undoubtedly, undeniably dead. He had been tried, tortured, and executed by the most ruthless and professional nation of pain inflictors and death dealers that the world had yet produced. He was punched and beaten. That was the warm-up. He was tied to a post and scourged, whipped over and over again by a whip made of leather thongs with bits of metal and bone embedded. A whipping so brutal that it was frequently fatal in and of itself. Then he was nailed to a cross of wood and left to suffocate as his pain and exhaustion and weakness overwhelmed his ability to pull himself up on the cross. Because the Romans were consummate professionals in everything they did, just to make sure he was really dead, they stabbed him in the side with a spear. Listen to some of the words from the Apostle John taken from chapter 19 of his Gospel. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Moving forward through that passage. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high holy day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so they would die faster, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. He who saw it is the writer of this gospel. He is telling you what he saw standing there. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Jesus of Nazareth was dead. For three years, he was a person and presence unlike anything the world had ever experienced. He was a rock star in this backwater province of Israel. Crowds followed him relentlessly to hear the amazing words he had to say and to to see the astounding miracles that he worked. For some people, he was the long-awaited Messiah that descendant of David that had been promised more than 700 years before. But now he was dead. For some people, he was a way to get healed of diseases, of conditions, paralysis, demons, blindness, deafness, muteness. He was amazing entertainment. He was a little bit of hope 
He was distraction in a world of poverty and oppression under the hobnailed leather sandal of the Roman legion. But the Jesus show was over. He was dead. And for others, he was their worst nightmare, constantly challenging the established order of things, endlessly denouncing the most respected leaders in the community, and always threatening to bring about a brutal Roman crackdown because he's walking around claiming to be the son of God. But that threat was over. He was dead. Yes, three years of action and excitement and chaos and controversy were finally over. This craftsman from the sticks was finally dead. Buried in a borrowed tomb outside the city, sealed by a great stone, and carefully watched over by temple guards. And then something happened that no one other than Jesus expected to happen. Read with me the words of John chapter 20, verses 1 through 22. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were, they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. 
When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus of Nazareth was dead. And so Mary Magdalene was not prepared for what she found in that pre-dawn darkness of that first Easter Sunday nearly 2,000 years ago. She was expecting to find a place of death, of sadness, of sorrow, of broken dreams. What she found instead was the greatest of all the signs done to prove the person and power of Jesus of Nazareth, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, because what she found there instead of death was the living, risen Jesus. The resurrection is the last and the greatest of the seven signs recorded in the Gospel of John. We have spent the last several weeks looking at each of these signs in turn and how they together and progressively point to the power of Jesus, that he is indeed the Messiah, that he is indeed the Son of God, the one with power over the elements of nature, with power over illness, with power over paralysis, with power over hunger, with power over blindness, and with power over death itself. But this sign is so much beyond the others. This is truly the great sign. This is the one that Jesus predicted over and over again throughout his three years of ministry. We see it in the Gospel of John in chapters 3 and 8 and 10 and 12 and 14 and 16. He said over and over what was going to happen, though no one understood. He had said what was going to happen, and now he has done it. This sign is quite literally the pivotal event in human history. Not just because it completely changed history, which even the most ardent skeptic has to acknowledge, but because it changed our future. The future of the world, your future, and my future. But can we believe this sign? And if so, what does it mean? As we've asked so often in the last several weeks, if this is a sign, and every sign points to something, to what does this sign point? It's very simple. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Therefore, we too will rise in him. I've already explained how Jesus died. He was really dead. The Romans did not make mistakes in this area. They loved killing people. But as we look at these verses from chapter 20, we see that Jesus rose again. He was really alive. Now, I will acknowledge, first and foremost, that the ancient Near Eastern world was much more comfortable with the idea of ghosts and spirits than our culture is today. 
Lots of people back then believed in ghosts. And if you'd said you'd seen the ghost of Jesus of Nazareth, nobody would have cared very much. It would not have been enough to inspire a movement, nor would it have inspired persecution. Because it just wouldn't have been that big a deal to say, hey, I met a ghost. And because of this, the gospel writers go out of their way to make it very clear that Jesus was not a ghost. That he was fully and completely physically alive. First, there is the matter of his body. A ghost would, of course, still be expected to have a body in the tomb. And there was no body in the tomb. Although Mary discovered the empty tomb, she immediately ran and got Peter and John, who who verify that while everything that had been used to wrap Jesus up on Friday afternoon was still there, Jesus was not. By bringing two adult males into the conversation, the fact that the tomb was empty was now legally admissible in the ancient Near Eastern world. John gives us, Lots of little details from his personal experience, his personal eyewitness, his personal visit to this tomb. And these details help us understand that this body wasn't just stolen, as some might say. It wasn't moved like Mary originally thought. Because remember verses 6 and 7? Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. These verses are talking about the large amount of valuable linen that had been used to wrap the body of Jesus on Friday afternoon, along with something like 75 pounds of expensive spices that would have been used to keep down the smell of a decaying corpse. If someone had stolen the body of Jesus, they would have taken the wrappings with them because they were worth a good bit of money, And because walking around with an unwrapped dead body is kind of nasty. Same thing if you tried to move the body. But the wrappings are present. And in fact, the face cloth has been very neatly folded, or the language may mean rolled up, and set aside. Because its wearer didn't need it anymore. Now these facts alone were enough for John to understand what had happened, to finally put the pieces together of all the things Jesus had been telling him for three years. Because he says in verse 8, then the other disciple, and and the other disciple is almost certainly John, because he's talking about first-person experiences here, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. That doesn't mean he believed the tomb was empty. He didn't need to believe that. His eyes told him that. This belief is that Jesus had risen, just as he had promised. I would suspect that he's remembering one of the many times that Jesus told him what was going to happen, that he was going to die and that he was going to come back to life. For example, John 10. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. But there is so much more in these verses that make sure we get the point that Jesus is totally and completely physically alive. In verse 17, Jesus tells Mary, don't cling to me. And this is not talking about 
some psychological need she has to be present, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, okay, get over it and be independent. Matthew 28, 9 tells us that she had grabbed his feet and worshipped him. She was physically clinging to him. It would be almost trite to say that you can't cling to a ghost or to grab the feet of a ghost, but that's why these little details are here. Because it was widely understood in the ancient Near East that ghosts didn't have feet, but Jesus did. And so we see how all these little clues help us understand Jesus was alive. In verse 22, Jesus breathed on the disciples. Again, that's not something ghosts can do. We see more unghostly behavior in verse 27. It was shown in the video, right, where Thomas touches wounds. And in another gospel, we see Jesus eat with his friends. And as you might imagine, ghosts can't eat because it makes a mess. And it wasn't just a few people who who saw the risen Jesus. It wasn't just a couple of disciples. Because the Gospels tell us about numerous visits to the disciples, but Paul tells us about even more in 1 Corinthians 15. Then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that would be Jesus' brother. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. When Paul wrote this letter, many of those witnesses could have stood up and said, no, it didn't happen like this, you're lying. But they didn't. More than 500 people encountered the risen Jesus, including men who had been adamantly skeptical, like his brothers, or adamantly opposed to him, like Paul. And ultimately, that is, I think, the most compelling evidence of all, the way that these men, the ones who had scattered and run when Jesus was arrested, the ones who in today's passage we see cowering in a locked room, were suddenly and completely transformed into people who spent decades of their life transforming the world. The world changed because of these men. They changed because they were boldly preaching the message of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and most of them died willingly for this. If you were here Thursday night, you got a, an explanation on that. So what changed? What changed these mice and to men who changed the world. It is the encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. Jesus rose again. He was completely alive. And because he rose, we too will rise in him. That's what this sign points to. Remember, John calls this a sign, and and if we don't include this part, it's just a miracle. It's an interesting historical fact, like, so many other interesting things from 2,000 years ago, but this is a sign, and it points to the greatest truth of all, that we have a future in Jesus Christ. This sign proves everything that Jesus ever said about himself. It proves that he is the Christ. It proves that he is the Son of God. 
it proves that he has power over life and death. And because he has the authority to lay down his own life and take it back up again, he has that power over our lives as well. As he promised in chapter 5, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And as he promised in chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's why we're celebrating this morning. This is why we're here. Because he lives, because he is the firstborn of the dead, we can trust his words that he has indeed gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us in his father's house. Because he lives, we can be certain that when the shepherd calls, we can follow his voice all the way to paradise. Because he lives, we can be confident that he has opened the path to God. But it is a narrow path. Because God is perfect and holy and just and righteous and all-knowing and all-seeing, and ever-present, and we are not. Sure, most days we do pretty well. But there are days in each of our lives where we are not at all perfect, or holy, or just, or righteous. Days where we are cruel, or selfish, or petty, or backstabbing, or impure, or abusive, or offensive. Days where we seek glory for ourselves at the expense of those around us, whether they be friends, family, co-workers, schoolmates. Days where we lie, or cheat, or steal, or just bend the rules a little to get ahead of the other guy. Days where our anger, or our lust, or our greed, or our desire for comfort, our need for control get the best of us, and we mess up. We cannot help ourselves. We might be able to fool ourselves for a while, but we cannot help ourselves. Most of us here try very hard to do well. I'm confident of that. You all look like a very nice group. But we keep messing up, and when we mess up, well, we try harder the next time. I'm going to get it the next time but we just keep messing up, don't we? And it can be frustrating. If we're serious about trying to do the right thing, it gets frustrating when we keep messing up. It is irritating. It is discouraging. And and truth be told, most of the time we're doing it in the same pathetic and predictable way, time after time after time. We all do it. We all sin and fall short of the standard that a perfect and holy God requires us to meet. The standard that we have to meet if we want to get to heaven. We try so hard to follow the rules. To pretend like we've got it all together, right? To pretend that our family never has problems. That our finances are perfect. That our jobs are going great. 
that our marriage couldn't be better, that our, our cute kids are perfect angels. We try so hard to put on the good, strong face, but it's exhausting sometimes, isn't it? And you know, it's never going to be good enough. Never going to be good enough to get to heaven because we can never be good enough to earn our way to the presence of a perfect God. That path is closed because we all mess up, we all sin, and the price of sin is death, spiritual death, eternal separation from a good and holy and perfect God. That is what we deserve. But it is not what God wants for us. Because he loves us, and he wants us to be with him. He loves all of us, each of us, and he wants each of us to be with him. And so because Jesus lives, he opened the real path, our real hope. You see, Jesus never sinned like we do. He was tempted to sin, believe me, he was tempted to sin. He had temptations like we maybe never experienced. But he never gave in and he never messed up. But he was still executed like a rebel. That's why you crucified somebody, because they were a rebel. right? That word thief is probably not the best translation. Rebel is a better translation. He died a terrible death on a Roman cross. He was not a rebel. His resurrection proved that. It proved he was innocent, but he still died like a rebel because we're rebels, right? We're all rebels against God. We, we do the things we want to do rather than the things he wants us to do for our own good. As Jesus said, he voluntarily laid down his life. This was a choice for him. He did it by his own choice, he did it by his own power, and he did it as a sacrifice for us to open that door. You see, up to that point, if you wanted to get right with God, if you wanted to get clean from whatever you had done, you had to to sacrifice a perfect little animal. And it could clean up some of your mess, some of what you had done to that point. But it couldn't cover you in the future, so when you messed up again, you were just going to be back in a few days or a few weeks or maybe the next time you were in Jerusalem. Because it was an animal. It couldn't cover everything. No amount of animals could cover all of the sins of the world, all of the past sins, the present sins, the future sins. But the sacrifice of the unique and holy and perfect Son of God the one who is infinitely good and infinitely pure, that could cover the sins of the world. That could cover your sins and mine. Paul says it so well in Romans 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Christ died and rose again so that we could have an eternal future. A future that we cannot earn for ourselves. A future we do not deserve. 
but a future that a loving and perfect creator of the universe wants for us to have. Desires deeply for us to have because he is our father in heaven. He made us. He loves us. He loves us no matter the terrible things we might have done in the past. No matter the pitiful or pathetic things we've done in the past. No matter the embarrassing or shameful things we've done in the past. He still loves us. And he gave us the way to get home. Christ died and rose again so that we could have an eternal future. And all any of us has to do is accept it in faith. To believe in our hearts that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again. To confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. To embrace him as our Lord and Savior. To confess our sins to God. The God who longs to forgive those sins. The God who wants to forgive us so very much. That by believing, we might have eternal life in his name. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Therefore, we too will rise in him. Please pray with me. Father God, we gather here on this Easter morning to celebrate the great sign that you worked 2,000 years ago. To celebrate the resurrection of your son, Jesus. The resurrection that proves so much about him that makes possible our hope that gives us certainty of salvation through faith in him. Father, I pray that if there are any here who have not yet turned to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that you would speak to them, that your word would tug at their heart, that they would surrender to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It is in his powerful name that I pray. Amen.